0: News, weather, traffic,
1: money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the cleanup has begun in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona. And for the people in Puerto Basque, it's about more than just fixing up their homes. It's about rebuilding their entire lives. Global Nationals' Mike Jolet has been talking to some of those residents. He is in Newfoundland and Labrador and joins us now. Hi, Mike. Uh, good morning, Simi. Where are you and what's it like there?
2: Well, I'm uh, just on Knox uh, Avenue uh, on the edge of of Basque, one of the furthest western spots in, uh, in Newfoundland here, and uh, one of the spots hardest hit by Fiona. I, I just spoke with uh, a man named Robin who barely escaped right before the storm hit. He had two homes that were, I- I'm looking at it now, and I don't even understand where they were, but because all I see is bare rocks. But there were two homes and a shed there. Fiona ripped them apart and then strip the rocks bare of all the earth, and it just looks like coastline now. And I found him looking through all this debris, trying to find whatever he could, including his teeth, because he had to leave so suddenly. So oh, it's just man. interesting stories like that that we're, that we're hearing. Yesterday I spoke with, uh, with a man named Smokey, who uh, had, he had an inkling something was going wrong, that this was not your average storm, and he moved his truck to higher ground. And by the time he got back to his house, the rogue waves came in and and pulled him away. They knocked him down. He never saw the wave come he I asked him how how, how high was the wave. He said, "I have no idea because I was under it and he oh. got He started to get dragged out to sea and he was clawing his way. His hands and wrists and legs are all cut up, but he managed to grab hold of i guess something the old foundation to his home perhaps and uh and and he was able to pull himself to safety and he he got away by the you know by the skin of his teeth um and uh, and he's just but he's lost everything. And uh, Robin has lost everything. And we're really, people are worried about them because insurance isn't going to cover it because insurance might cover wind damage, but they don't cover storm surge. And as uh, Robin says, it's interesting. What causes a storm surge? Wind. So he's having a hard time understanding that. Now the provinces that we're talking about uh, getting funds in here from the province, from the feds, but that's probably not going to make people whole. It's going to be able to be enough it never really is. So there's some GoFundMe pages. So if anybody is listening to this and, and wants to help people out here, the GoFundMe pages, I think, are the way to go.
1: You know, Mike, Newfoundlanders are nothing if not resilient. You know, they've seen bad times before. So what is the mood like right now after Fiona?
2: Smiles. All you see are smiles. Even even Robin, without his teeth, is, is smiling. And, uh, and and people people are happy. They're, they're happy to be alive. Uh, I mean, there's tears for what they've lost. For you know, the one woman who lost her life, obviously. Uh, but you're right. They are re- a resilient people. They're a friendly people. A happy people. You know, I've been here. I think believe this is my third time here in Newfoundland. I mean, you tell me you've been here a number of times. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a cliche that uh, have you ever met an unhappy and and an unwelcome Newfoundlander? No, I never have. No. What I mean it's true as far as I know.
1: Yeah, that is so true. So were there warnings did people, you talked about people being caught off guard here so did they what was unexpected about this storm? I know they know they're used to big storms there. So what was on, what was different for them this time?
2: Well, where they're at in in Newfoundland on the uh, the further uh, the west coast and right on the tip there any sort of storm that comes through the hurricanes whether they hit directly or not this place gets hit. So it's been built to withstand like 160 kilometer per hour winds. All the homes, and most of the homes here are perfectly fine. It's what made this one different is the the storm surge. There was uh, we've had record, they had record sea levels here uh, after during the storm. The barometric pressure was uh, the lowest it's ever been as well. It was also a full moon, so the tides were high. So oh. there was sort of a, a perfect storm. I hate to say a perfect storm, but it was a perfect storm in terms of everything coming together. And uh, these massive waves came in, and they have on the the edge of, uh, on the outside of of the town, uh, just off the coast, there's all these natural barriers, these natural little islands that act as, as break walls, and the water went right over top of them. Uh, some people were saying 50-foot waves, 60-foot waves going over top, and that's what really, really hurt this town, because it went over top like they weren't even there, and then it smashed into these homes and uh and and took them away but people once it started to get really bad there was a call to evacuate and that's really what saved their lives uh you know robin who i was speaking about before uh he got the, the word and he just raced out obviously he left his teeth he says he just went out with his shoes and his shirt and and he got out barely in the nick of time
1: wow amazing okay so then the rebuild continues and has the weather been all right since then
2: no well not the rebuild is there's no rebuild right now. We're just getting rid of all of the, the debris. And they're really just still assessing damage. They're saying that uh, upwards of 80 homes in Portabasque itself, which is a population of 4,000, by the way, uh, 80 homes are either destroyed completely or are damaged and need serious repair. Uh, and they believe that number is going to go up. But in terms of the weather, it, uh, it's not good today. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna hamper the problem. I mean, they say in Newfoundland, and uh, the MP uh, Goody Hutchins said this to me yesterday. She goes, uh, "Just wait for it. You'll get four seasons in one day." And I think <laughs> I've experienced true. three already today. And it's about to start raining in the next hour or so. And we're expecting 40 to 70 millimeters Ooh. of rain, upwards of 100 millimeters in some spots. And uh, considering how much it rained yesterday, uh, I believe it. And also, the, the ground is so saturated right now. There's nowhere for this water to go. So there could be other problems uh, in the days to come.
1: All right, Mike, thank you so much for the update.
2: Thank you. Great talking to, uh, again to me. It's
1: Mike Drolet, our global national reporter, who is in Port-au-Basque in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, just talking to residents, seeing what it's like there. And now comes the very, very tough decision about what to do or how to even uh, rebuild some of those homes. And if you've been to Newfoundland, then you know that in all these small communities the houses are pretty much right on the water right you're either on the water or you're across the street from the water and so with this kind of record high storm surge they had this time I guess the question is well do you rebuild right there or do you you know go a little higher up the hill or on the other side of the road and and how do people afford that they'd have to buy property for that so lots of questions about the rebuild there for sure This is Mornings with Simi. Time now for us to check in with our contributor, Raji Silhal. Raji, what do you think? Like, are are you liking this weather or do you want it to start raining? Because I would like it to start raining.
3: You do not want it to start raining. I do. It's time. It's time to have.
1: Listen, we need to fill up those reservoirs. We need to get the, you know, grass on the parks and everything green again. It's that time of year. It's time for a little bit of rain, a little bit of moisture out there. Things are too dry. Trees need the rain, Raji.
3: (laughs) I need this sun last night's uh, sun fall was so beautiful, watching the sun slowly come down. It was so gorgeous. yesterday was so warm. I was in a tank top. People around me are talking about pulling out there you, you shouldn't be, their no, fall boots, you like, shouldn't be no I'm sorry you shouldn't be in a
1: tank top on september the twenty sixth that's just wrong.
3: <laughs> the only thing I don't like about this weather is that Halloween is approaching and you don't feel like it is so I'm not talking about caution. you just made my point
1: you just made my point this is not (laughs) seasonal weather anymore and I need some rain on my fall garden and I think it's time for the weather to change
3: give me another week of this Nope, please. Uh, I love it. ASAP. I would like this to be over with.
1: <laughs> People can weigh in with their thoughts. Are you ready for the weather to change? Or are you like Raji and you're ready to keep wearing those shorts and flip flops right through till November? You can email me simi at <laughs> com. Now, maybe the weather is a nice distraction for us too, though, Raji, because it's painful out there when it comes to paying for stuff these days.
3: Whoa, the price of gas is just through the roof. I was talking even on the weekend. I interviewed someone uh, from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I told her how much we're paying in Vancouver for gas. She was floored, but of course, they want us all to move to Alberta. So uh, I, it's so expensive for gas just now that I, I am seriously curbing my driving. It's affected that a lot. Um, and, you know, we hear that overall inflation is apparently easing off. Now, are we seeing that in the grocery stores? Because the NDP says we're not. They say that Canada's three major grocery chains have all posted increased profits. So Loblaws was up by $12 million for the same quarter last year. And so what they're wondering, they're going to call for a parliamentary probe about these rising costs to see if the major grocery chains are raking in excess profit. And I see increased prices at every grocery store that I go to. There's three that I mostly go to and the prices are up across the board. It doesn't matter whether I'm looking at uh, bread or or milk or baking ingredients, fruits and vegetables, all of it is up. And in Canada, StatsCan says it's gone up 10.8% in the last year. That's huge.
1: Yeah, that is huge. Every time I go to the grocery store, I expect things to be more and more expensive. Also, the thing that gets me is the shrinkflation right? Where you think, oh, that's a good price for it. And then you pick it up and realize, wait a minute, there's hardly anything in this. Like obviously it's gotten smaller and yet you're paying the same price for it.
3: What are you noticing shrinkflation on?
1: Oh, I notice it in a lot of packaging, like in a lot of, um, like I buy granola or buy muesli, you can notice the difference that is definitely less product in that package when you buy it. Uh, And even just like I'm, you know, even if I'm not buying stuff and I'm checking things out of the grocery store, there are smaller packages there for sure.
3: Yeah, I have noticed that through the bakery section where I would normally pay X amount for six items, like six croissants, now I'm paying the same price maybe, but oh, there's only three or four in there. Um, And, you know, I know a lot of people do curb their spending around these increased prices in grocery, but it's a hard adjustment to make. It's a really
1: hard adjustment to make. And I think um, everybody is finding different ways to cope, right? Whether, have you changed anything about how you shop?
3: So I had a, a funny experience with gardening this summer and my tomatoes took forever to come through. But when they did, they were incredible. They were bountiful. I had so many that I was able to make sauces I was able to jar things away. Now that's not normally me. I'm not like a canner and all of that, but it did make me think, oh, is there anything that I could grow in the fall uh, to curb some of these costs? Because I, I probably, I'm not kidding. I had a huge crop of tomatoes. I probably saved probably over a hundred dollars just in my tomatoes alone. well wow, tomatoes
1: especially if the like you get the heirloom or you want ones that are fully ripe uh, those are so expensive and I probably did the same thing we just ate a bucket load after bucket load of tomatoes this yeah. summer because they turned out to be so nice the weather when it finally got nice uh, was great so you're saving dollars everywhere that you can have you changed anything about like what you're cooking for your family?
3: Yep. Yeah, I don't do canned beans of any sort. Uh, They've got to be whether they're uh, navy beans or chickpeas, it's all soak them prior. And now I talked to my husband the other day about his beloved oat milk that he likes to have in his uh, chai every morning. I've told him that we're going to make it ourselves. Uh, probably cut down a hundred bucks a month on just that alone. Wow! Uh, same thing with almond milk, uh, very easy to make at home. I just haven't done it cause Hey, full-time job and two kids, but I'm going to do it. I'm, I've, uh, committed to some things that I have to change because these grocery prices are through the roof.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. Right. Everybody has to uh, figure out some way, the dried beans, the oh, great way to do it. We do that at my house. That is the way to go. It just takes a little more, uh, prep work, right. To get that done Prep work for sure. Raji, yeah. thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We've talked a lot about our healthcare crisis. Like, I think it really came to the forefront during the pandemic and as we came out of that, just to see where all of the areas are that we are struggling. Waiting to see a specialist. Waiting if you can even find one to get to a family doctor everybody seems to be waiting for something that they urgently urgently need and that's even in our big kind of rural urban centers never mind our more rural areas that are having this problem and it's been going on there for years Health advocates say that they have been struggling in these rural areas of BC with recruitment and retention for a long time. And advocates in those small communities have said that, you know, the wants and needs of residents there have been and are being ignored. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Jude Cornelson, associate professor in the Department of Family Practice at UBC and the co-director at the Center for Rural Health Research. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Good morning. Good morning.
1: So what is it that you have taken a look at here? I know they've worked hard at trying to recruit and retain um, more health care practitioners in the rural areas, but are, are we not succeeding?
4: Well, as, as we can tell by the news, in fact, we're barely treading water in rural settings, just like across the province. The difference is, of course, in rural settings where you have very uh, small numbers of providers, when you have um, an absence or where you have a retirement or somebody stepping back from practice, it ripples through the community. There's no redundancy. So we're seeing the effects of the province-wide and, quite frankly, the Canada-wide recruitment and retention shortage really exacerbated in rural settings. And we also have to remember that if there's no local care in your clinic, often you have to travel to the next community. And that's difficult. It's, it's difficult for uh, time but also for expense for rural residents.
1: It is a huge... We've been hearing about that, right? People in hospitals, that, okay, that hospital's going to be closed down overnight, then you're going to have to go elsewhere and like, So we're talking an hour, hour and a half,
4: Absolutely. And sometimes even longer. And that is um, incredibly onerous. We actually talk to rural residents not just in emergency situations but when they just need to see a specialist or they might need some diagnostic care about the average amount spent traveling from their home communities and um, according to a province-wide survey for a course of care for for one treatment issue people are spending more than two thousand dollars out of pocket to travel from their communities to sometimes pay for accommodation um, and of course return home and that's um, untenable for a lot of families
1: yeah that is Crazy. So tell me about this initiative that you think might help.
4: So, um, I'm a liaison to UBC for the BC Rural Health Network, which is a phenomenal group of rural communities that have banded together from the ground up at a community level to advocate for their local health care. But in advocating for local care, there's also the recognition that a lot of the communities, although they're different and the geography has different demands, actually experience some of the same issues. So, they've come together under the umbrella network of the BC Rural Health Network, and we're... Within the network, we're setting up what we're calling the implementation committee, and this is to to focus with you know laser precision on the issue of moving um, strategies and evidence into policy and planning at both uh, local level at a regional level, and at a provincial level. And when I talk about evidence, I just want to be very clear that, of course, we mean scientific evidence and policy evidence, but also we consider evidence to be local community lived experience and wisdom and individual experience, which is sometimes left out of the equation.
1: Right, so how do we get started on this?
4: So we're for- we formed the committee. We're starting to advocate on priority issues, and we all know what the priority issues are. It's av- um, access to primary care. It's access to specialist care. It's um, transport from small rural communities, both um, interfacility and emergency transport. Um, we need to shorten wait times. All of the things that we're we're all very aware of. So we're going to go through this issue by issue, and make sure that we look at it. Through a rural lens, because the effect of these um, situations in healthcare are different for rural communities. So, we're going to look at what rural communities need, but most importantly, we're going to listen to people in rural communities. We're going to listen to people receiving the services, people providing the services, people organizing the services, and try and provide a conduit from those voices to decision makers to um, open the dialogue a little bit more. You know, I have to say rural community members are feeling like they would like a lot more say in their healthcare planning and they haven't been listened to.
1: And so how do we get the people, though, who might potentially take those jobs to welcome that idea, to maybe not work in the big centres they thought they were going to, but to maybe live a small town life?
4: Yeah, you know, there is interest in rural practice, without a doubt. What, what I think we have to do is make sure we have system supports in, in place. So we need to make sure that rural physicians, nurses, midwives um, have backup support that, so they can leave their community if they need a personal break, if they need to do continuing education, things like that that we don't have in place. So we've basically relied on the good graces of many people to go and practice in rural communities, and and most rural providers have an incredible commitment to the communities they practice in. But we can't build a robust healthcare system on the good graces of a few people.
1: So do you think that we can, if you talk to the people who live there about how they would like to see services delivered, is think there's compromise there? Is that they're willing to say, hey, yeah, we can do things differently as long as we can get somebody here?
4: Absolutely. There's not only compromise, there's a lot of innovation that's coming from rural communities out of necessity. When you don't have a lot of resources to work with or you're short-staffed, you have to figure out how to do things differently. So I actually think we need to turn the, the rural deficits thinking right on its head and look at what we can learn from what's happening across rural BC right now.
1: Okay, so is there an effort, do you think, to make this happen? Can we put this into practice?
4: Well, we'll see. That's a million dollar question, actually. And we're hoping we're going to have the uptake of people who are actually making the decisions in the health authorities and the Ministry of Health. The very foundational step is to start the dialogue. And that's what we're really hoping for. And there's good intent. So I think I think that that's possible.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Dr. Jude Cornelson, who's the associate professor in the Department of Family Practice at UBC and co-director of the Centre for Rural Health Research. And they are saying, listen, we need an overhaul of how not only we deliver, but how we attract people to go and work in health care in our smaller and rural communities of BC, starting with... They said, um, you know, talking to people who live in those communities about, listen, what's the best way to approach this? How would you like to see health care? What are, you know, how can we make some changes so that everybody is happy we can attract more people to work there? And you know what, at this point, I would think whatever works. If, if we could try that to see if that would improve the situation for people who live in smaller communities, and yes, absolutely we should. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I tell you, scientists were pretty excited yesterday. And maybe you've seen the video. If not, you should check it out. But NASA and their double asteroid redirection test, otherwise known as DART, was successful. They managed to redirect a non-threatening space rock and altered its flight path. Why is this so exciting? Well, that's what we wanted to get into today, right? So joining us now to talk more about that is Lisa Dang, doctoral researcher at McGill University. Uh, we love talking about all this science and space stuff. Lisa, thanks for being back with
5: us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me today. How, Actually, I, I just moved institution. I'm no longer at McGill. I graduated. Well, so I'm congrac- at University of Montreal. Congratulations. Nicely Thank done. You. I feel like we should, we should send you a present. Um, <laughs>
1: how excited were you yesterday watching this?
5: It was, it was stunning. It was just like a very exciting footage to see with all the other scientists. Um, so basically there's a lot of uncertainty that went around it. I don't work particularly on this, but I was still excited just being part of the astronomy community. Okay. Why is it so significant? Lisa, can you explain that to us? Yeah. So basically this is the first time that uh, such a, um, uh, a um, how do you call it? S- situation or such a, such a project has been done. So basically um uh, this is not, as you said, this was a non-threatening asteroid. Uh, it was just a test that we did to prove that we could do this in the future if ever an asteroid or a threatening or an asteroid on a threatening path uh, should should collide with Earth. So it's very reassuring to know that it worked as predicted, but also Um, It's very exciting to sort of like do this and like everything was live, right? Everything that you had planned for all the mission that has been planned for years now. uh, They only had a few, you know, minutes to hours of actual execution and it worked. Okay, how difficult is it to do what they did yesterday? Like,
1: why was this such a challenge?
5: Yeah, so one of the big challenges is that when you see an asteroid coming at you, um, it's not like you can send a spacecraft to see what it looks like up close, right? Uh, so there was a lot of uncertainty around it. We didn't know what the shape of the asteroid was. We didn't know how big it was, or at least we didn't know what the you know what the overall shape of the thing was. So if it happened to be in a donut shape and we had the trajectory right, right, uh, super precise going to the asteroid, we could have gone right through if there was a hole. Uh, so luckily, there was no hole. Everything was as expected. And, and it's very ingenious to, to be able to do this. So with just a small spacecraft that didn't, uh, that didn't wait a lot, we were able to move a huge piece of rock um, just by sort of like flipping it.
1: Okay. So Lisa, is this an idea that NASA and scientists have always had, or did it come about because they, you know, they watch movies in Hollywood, like the rest of us? (laughs)
5: <laughs> i think I think it's a little bit of both. I think this um uh this this concern that one day an asteroid big enough may come to hit Earth is a real concern if you think of just like if you go back to history and you think of the moon, for example, there was a lot of questions about the moon. Um, and one of the biggest hypotheses was that there was a big rock that collided with earth. And then at some point they sort of divided the two and it became earth and the moon. And so if something was to happen again, that would be um But the chances are that that smaller rock hit us is also a concern. And so, yeah.
1: OK, so then what does NASA do? What do researchers like you now do with this information, with the fact that, oh, OK, we did manage to do this?
5: Yeah. So if we are managed, uh, if we did manage to do it now, what scientists are doing. So there is a lot of scientists in the world that are looking up at the sky and sort of tracking debris and as an asteroid. And so every night they like point at the sky and then look at the trajectory of things and try to estimate is any of these going to be uh, colliding with Earth in the next like five to 10 years. And so this is something that we can't do when it's too late. We have to act very early in order to deviate the trajectory of these asteroids. And so now with this information, I think there's a lot of people tracking these asteroids, seeing if any of them are threatening it. If there are, how long in advance should we plan such a, uh, such a mission in order to deviate um, these asteroids enough so that we save Earth?
1: Okay. I love that people are working on this. So Lisa... Are people working on this like all the time, making those calculations, making those kinds of plans?
5: Yeah, people are doing it. So they're not like doing it in pencil and papers now, right? Uh, you get like a bunch <laughs> no, of images. I didn't think that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so now you get a bunch of images and the, you know, with all of the technological advances in the past years, where our images are even better, we're discovering new asteroids or just like new debris every day. Um, and so these are done in real time. And then those that are. All most concerning things are, are flagged all the time.
1: Okay, so what is new about this then? So how did we take this research to the next level?
5: Yeah, so a lot of the times is that luckily we didn't find anything that was threatening so far. Um, but if there were to, if we were to find something threatening, if you've seen the movie, don't look up. There's this like whole, yes. uh, the entire premise. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the entire premise was that scientists was was t- were telling people that there was something happening, uh, that it was inevitable unless we acted early, and so this is just an example that we have the tools to act early if uh, the this this situation was to come in the future.
1: Well, you know what? I've watched the video. I found it really fascinating. You must have watched the video a bunch of times too.
5: Yeah, yeah, I, I watched the, <laughs> all the videos. I've seen all of the means uh, with the last shot yes. of uh, of the mission. So, yeah, that was really exciting for astronomy.
1: And I was going to say, it's nice for astronomy and for scientists. And I guess when all this becomes mainstream, right, does it
5: kind of elevate everybody? Yeah, I think it, elev- it elevates everybody. I think it's, it's, really, uh, it's really fun when some of the things that we do come up in the public sphere um, and also becomes trendy in some way. Uh, right. But, yeah, it was very exciting. That's all good. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for the invite.
1: Well, always, we love talking about astronomy and research. Lisa Dang, postdoctoral research fellow at iExoplanets at the Université de Montreal. Lots more to come on that. I know there's so much, so much fun stuff out there because people were fascinated by this. If you haven't seen the video, you should definitely check it out. But NASA learning that, yes, they can, in fact smash something into an asteroid, they can make those calculations in case they ever need to, to make something not hit planet Earth. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a lot of updates in the news recently about drug trafficking, how law enforcement is dealing with it, whether it's accusations of a large-scale illicit drug operation that police are looking into or the Combined Special Forces Enforcement Unit getting involved in civil forfeiture too. Well, we're going to find out more about all of this now from Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bolin. Hi, Kim. Hi. Tell me about this latest story you've been writing about. So it feels like we're hearing a lot about civil forfeiture and and some busts of some large-scale operations.
0: Yes, I found one recent civil forfeiture case uh, where hundreds of thousands of dollars were seized by police uh, last summer uh, during an investigation into what they're alleging was a major drug trafficking ring. Uh, One of the people involved was a full-patch Hells Angel Another person uh, was also alleged to be part of a criminal organization, though an unnamed one. Uh, and that man, John Lutar, had um, almost $250,000 uh, in his Olympic Village apartment when police entered with a search warrant in July of uh, 2021. Uh, a third man was also part of the criminal organization, David Oppenheim. He has since passed away, but he's named as a defendant in this lawsuit because uh, they want to, uh, you know, forfeit what was seized uh, from him, a box full of cash wrapped in Christmas paper uh, in his vehicle on the same day. Uh, they want that forfeited uh, to the BC government.
1: Okay, so that's so interesting. So they're still waiting to find out whether charges are going to be laid, but they're already going after the money. Now, is that unusual?
0: No, it's not unusual. I mean, the charge approval process, which is carried out by both federal and provincial prosecutors, depending on the type of criminal investigation that it is, takes some time. Sometimes it takes years in some of the bigger more complex cases and sometimes charges end up not getting laid at all uh, but the government still has the ability to go after assets that are seized you know because there's a lower burden of proof in a civil court so they file these civil cases and you know in many instances we do see charges laid maybe within a few months uh in this case there are no charges yet uh, but the file is under review by the public prosecution service of canada
1: Okay, and so what do we know about this case right now? How big was it? Well, I think, you know,
0: I found it really interesting uh, because it was people that you couldn't tell how they were otherwise connected. Only one was alleged to be a member of the Hells Angels. Uh, right. These, You know, he was supposedly working with these other two major or bigger players uh, that were part or had made up a criminal organization. And then there were another... Um, Six people, uh, some on the island, some in the interior, uh, who were part of this uh, drug ring. So they were, you know, being watched by the anti-gang agency for some period of time. Uh, you know, they conduct surveillance, they make their notes, they write in the civil forfeiture statements of claim uh, that, you know, they were observed having a series of short meetings over several months that were consistent with drug trafficking uh, you know, and then when they moved in to execute search warrants, uh, they found a lot of unexplained cash and a lot of drugs and some firearms. And in the case of the Health Angel, uh, who lives in Maple Ridge, you know, they also see his Health Angel vest, you know, what, is, what are called the colors, right, with his patch on the back. So, uh, you know, there's some detail in the statement of claim uh, the people involved, most of them have filed statements of defense just last week where they're denying the allegations. Uh, one person is alleging that the searches uh, violated his charter rights. So we'll see where this goes. But interesting, the fellow in this case, John Lutar, who had the most cash uh, seized in his apartment, um, forfeited about $285. Uh, Two hundred eighty-five thousand right. dollars uh in 2019 you know after he was uh, really? part of a similar investigation so uh that didn't go to court there were no uh charges laid criminally uh, but you know there was a civil forfeiture case filed in the vancouver police investigation And that large amount of cash, almost $300,000, was forfeited to the government.
1: Right. And here we are again with that. Uh, Kim. And here we are again. (laughs) Kim, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Anytime, Simi. That's Kim Boland, crime reporter for The Vancouver Sun. You can read her latest on this uh, in The Vancouver Sun or at vancouversun.com. I mean, somebody has a couple of hundred thousand dollars taken in civil forfeiture, and then a few years later, it's the exact same thing. Yep, that's why that story is so fascinating.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, the news from the federal government that they will end all COVID-19 restrictions on October 1st has really brought a sigh of relief for many businesses who need that tourism traffic, and they're hoping this will be the thing to bring all that tourism traffic back. So what is their outlook now? Is there going to be a rebound? Are they thinking there's going to be a rebound? Our Raji Sohal joins us now for more on this. Good morning.
3: Hi, Simi. Are you a Point Roberts
1: visitor? Oh, I used to be. I lived in Ladner for 20 years. And so, yeah, you'd go down there, you'd get gas. Um, my kids were really fond at that time of the cereal Cocoa Puffs, which oh, yes. um, Cocoa Krispies, I'm my sorry, language. Cocoa Krispies, not Cocoa <laughs> Puffs. So Cocoa Krispies, you could only get down there. So yes, I did make uh, quite a few trips down there. <laughs>
3: Nice, nice. I used to go to Point Roberts as a kid too. We uh, grew up in Surrey. And so we would go, you know, we'd spend a good chunk of our summers there at the beach. And Point Roberts has always been in this unique position because they're a small community to begin with. And they are entirely reliant on the tourism economy of people just coming over, the Canadians coming over, crossing that border. And when the border shut down during the pandemic... The business dropped there so much. By some estimations, it was by 80%. And then last summer, there was this, uh, there was a surge again, I would say, of business coming back to Point Roberts because they had been granted this exemption um, for the PCR test. There was uh, that exemption from the Order of Counsel. And a lot of Canadians were not aware of the exemption. And so for them, not knowing how it worked or if it would work, knowing that people were going to get random tested, I think a lot of people, they were just confused. And you know what? When you are uncertain about whether a trip across the border is going to be efficient, swift, or if it's going to become a headache for you, I think most people would just go, I'm going to skip it. I'm going to wait until things are totally done. And we have that upcoming on October 1st. And so I've been curious about what they're going to do in Point Roberts. Are they bracing for more people? Uh, is business, some, there has been an uptick in some businesses since the uh, temporary um, exemption from that PCR test stuff. So I was so curious about what's going on with them. And I spoke with several business owners. One of them that I um, reached out to, they had actually changed ownership over the pandemic. And then Simi, I went hunting for another one and another one. I talked to four People yesterday who told me they've had to shutter or close uh, close business or change ownership entirely over the course of the pandemic, and that's that's rare in any other case. But it was it's normal right now in Point Roberts. One owner I talked to though, Nick Kaniski, he owns Kaniski's Reef. Uh, it's a, t- a restaurant and tavern there in Point Roberts. He's owned it for 35 years. He said this last summer, actually, for him, this was surprising for me to hear. He said people had had enough; they were really wanting to come down, so they just they made it happen. So his business ended up booming in the summer, but he said dropping all of the COVID-19 travel measures means it's just going to be clearer for folks to cross the border. So they'll be likelier to cross and maybe even busier.
6: Business owner, and so I think it, it's, it's going to be great for business because myself living in Point Roberts and I was exempt from having to fill out the ride cam going to Bellingham or staying in Delta area. So I didn't use it. But even for me, I just flew to uh tucson today and so i had to fill the app out to go to the vancouver airport and yeah, it was kind of frustrating for me so i can think of uh, uh people who, who don't want to be hassled by it and i think that it's kind of proven how much people aren't traveling to the u.s or how tourism's been hurt so i think it's going to make a big difference and i know a lot of people are afraid to come down and get something to eat then they're going to get secondary and get tested so then that that's kind of hassle so hopefully it should make a a, a big difference and, and uh i think uh tourism was down where travelers were down by 50 percent i had a super year this was probably one of my busiest years in the last 15 years uh the weather was great sitting out in the patio next to the ocean i i couldn't keep up so i can't imagine uh if we go back to back to normal next year, how, how I'm going to do it. It's, I'm kind of shorthanded for employees.
3: Wow. I had, I had expected you to say that business didn't go so well, but it was booming over the summer?
6: Yep. You had an hour wait to get in my place Friday, Saturday, Sunday. People wanted to get out. Yeah. And I can, I can only imagine the numbers were way down compared to 2019 when things were kind of normal. Um, I just people just wanted to get out and sit by the ocean and watch the whales, watch the eagles and, and uh, enjoy a drink. And it was great to see my fellow Canadians. It's been a long time since I've seen them. But I know a lot of them won't come down because of uh, the hassle of filling out the Rive can, which I, to- I totally under- understand. I think I'm at that generation that, that I'm not great on computers. And like uh i even had my uh, secretary filling it out and they wanted me to put the information all in again i go that's that's not right so she even struggled with it so i don't think it was as straightforward as, as they made it out to be it was uh, a it was a pain to fill out you know it wasn't that uh uh what i don't think it was that easy if you did it every day then there'd be no problem but when you do it once every six months it's, it's kind of frustrating
3: yeah, Simi, I think uh, some folks, the Rivecan, not a big deal for them. But for a lot of people, as he just echoed there, a Rivecan app was a nuisance. It was annoying. It was this extra step you had to go through. Not everyone is savvy with technology. And so I think it should make a difference at the border.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because like, I, I didn't really think it was that much of an issue, but I guess you do have to be a little bit more, if you're not comfortable on your phone, perhaps as much, uh, it would be an issue for people. I got used to it the first couple times it was, it felt cumbersome, but then after a while you get used to it. But, um, if, if it made things faster, I can see how it helped, but it's good to hear that they're still busy down there.
3: Well, some businesses, right? So I also talked to, uh, an owner of the marina there who told me, um, business plummeted for them. And then they saw an uptick over the summer months, but that it's still not back to normal and that they thought that Arrive Can app being dropped is the thing that's going to make all the difference. But everybody echoed to me this issue of staffing, Simi. The staffing shortage is so real. It's such a major problem. And that as they, some business owners told me that as they go into fall with the ArriveCan Can app being dropped and everything, now they're thinking, well, my next big problem is who's going to work here? I need staff.
1: Yeah, that would be a huge one, too. I mean, that's a problem in Tawasin already, like that part of South Delta already has an issue with recruiting people for businesses. And now I can't even imagine if you have to cross a border to go to work, how much how much more of an issue that's going to be.
3: Yeah. So that restaurant owner that we just heard from there, he told him he's actually looking to recruit from California, which I thought was really wild, but do whatever you got to do to to get your uh, staff shortage uh, issue fixed for sure.
1: Does this make do you think people more likely like are you more likely now to go across the border because of this?
3: Yeah, I am. Actually, I am knowing that there's not going to be a random testing um, because we've heard that random testing hit at sometimes up to 30 yeah. percent of travelers. So that's pretty significant. Um, and with kids in the car and that kind of thing. Yeah. Like uh, I'm going to do it now that it it's going to be streamlined and more efficient.
1: Yeah, I can see you. I don't think you're alone on that one. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Amy. That's our Raji Sohal there. In fact, Mark emailed me to say, I believe this will have a huge impact on travel. Mark says, I know with myself, I got a random COVID test in January, had to isolate for 10 days, and I decided that I would not be crossing again until all restrictions were lifted. Now that all restrictions are lifted, I'll be going down to resume my grocery shopping and fuel purchase from down south. I'm extremely happy, says Mark. Well, Would you agree with that? Do you think, okay, this is the thing now. Now I can start going back down across the border. This is Mornings with Simi. It's not just one type of business or one type of industry. It's all industries and all businesses. And really, it's everywhere, all over the province, right across the country. Employers are continuing to struggle with hiring more workers. So what are the unique reasons as to why this is happening? Is there one thing we can point to? Are there multiple factors? Well, joining us now is Ken Peacock, the Vice President and Chief Economist for the Business Council of BC. Ken, thanks for being here.
7: You're very welcome. So, have
1: Have you been talking to businesses about this?
7: Uh, We talked to to some businesses about it. Um, it, It's definitely something we hear around our table, uh, as you were saying, pretty much from all quarters. And it ranges right across um, all occupations, uh, high tech and and even lower skilled uh, jobs. So, yes, it's quite prevalent.
1: Does that surprise you, Ken, as an economist, too? Because, okay, high tech, you can understand those are highly skilled jobs, hard to train people up to get those. But we are talking jobs of all kinds here.
7: Yeah, it, I, I, a little bit of a surprise. The the thing to realize here, though, is some of this was in motion ahead of the pandemic. So if we look at vacancy rates, uh, the, the the number of openings in in the workforce, that number was rising ahead of the pandemic, trend, trending upwards, and growth in the labor market because of the demographic profile, the aging of the workforce, was also slowing. Then the pandemic came, and it's it sort of like so many other things the pandemic did, it accelerated these sort of underlying pre-existing trends, people churned and shifted into other occupations. And there's a little bit of people leaving, leaving the uh, the workforce. So all these factors came into play. But there was it was clear that uh, some tightening of the labor market was coming ahead of the pandemic. Jimmy.
1: Okay, so what can employers do? Have they learned to recruit? Or are they still adapting?
7: Oh, it's it, it's they're all learning to recruit. I would say employers are adapting, but the the challenge is there's just there are a limited number of, of workers. The labor market is very very large, and and the other thing to consider and remember as as you dig deeper down into the labor pool, uh, and if you if you look at um, unemployment rates, they're really really low for like the core working age people. Uh, and they're a little bit higher for the older and, and younger people, and so you just you get into um, lower lower skill levels and matching skills just becomes difficult. And I just just to really underscore the point of what's going on, Simi, you know, even even as the labor market was tightening ahead of the pandemic, the the number of unemployed people in the province was higher than than the number of job vacancies. There was about one and a half unemployed persons for every job opening. Now it's almost almost the opposite. There's more job openings, uh, well it is fully the opposite, there's more job openings than unemployed people, and I think it's around uh, just 0.8 persons uh, that could potentially fill fill these job openings. And and as you were indicating, uh, in BC it's a little tighter, the circumstances are a little tighter than other provinces, but similar numbers in other provinces, similar numbers across the border in Washington state. It's, it's really a widespread phenomenon.
1: Okay, so then how do we change things or how do businesses adapt to this? Is there, is there even kind of a magic recruitment strategy that's going to work here?
7: There's a couple things. Uh, the, there's a lot of talk in this space, of course, about um, job quality, lifestyle, flexibility in employment, particularly with all this work from home, uh, phenomena going on, uh, so th- that's something employers can do. Wages are going to have to go up in some instances, and, and we are see that. If I look at like the wage offered in these different industries, all of them have gone up. They're kind of higher than than what you would expect from sort of pre-existing trends. So you're seeing upward wage pressure, pretty well right right across the, the spectrum. But I think more and more to me is uh, businesses are going to have to look to capital uh, automation systems that can reduce, reduce labor. I, I know it's really early days and most people have probably seen those robots delivering uh, food in, in restaurants. There's a few of those. I've seen uh, and heard of those being deployed here in the lower mainland. Um, it sounds a bit futuristic, I know, but the reality <laughs> is just with the demographic crunch, There's going to have to be some automation and some capital to to replace labor uh, in the economy.
1: Isn't that so interesting, though, Ken? Because like you know, three, four, five years ago, automation was seen as oh, we're trying to replace workers and this is no good. And Mm -hmm. now it's quite clear that if we want services to, if we want to keep accepting services at the level that we are accustomed to, we can't expect people to be continuing to deliver those services.
7: Oh, no, absolutely. And the other thing that's a little bit interesting, just to add add on to your point, is there was, as you said, there was a lot of concern, say, 2017, 18 At least it was being studied about the potential risk of job losses due to automation, and people were speculating that, you know, artificial intelligence was going to displace people. Now we actually are looking for, please, artificial intelligence, uh, come more quickly to to help us. (laughs)
1: So can AI get us there though? Can, is is the robotic industry up there enough? I know that in fast food, they're trying to do this uh, to replace like people, you know, kind of flipping the burgers and, you know, f- deep frying the French fries, that kind of thing. Is the industry ready to catch up on that?
7: I, I think you're going to see it, but this diffusion and, and uptake of technology is slow and I think the conversation we were just having the points we were just making about you know the expectation five years ago versus the reality just sort of reinforces the the point that it it is slow to to substitute these and and make these changes with technology um it, but it but it will happen and the only uh i guess the only other thing i, I would say about the labor market that's also also interesting and adding to complications. If you look at the job market by by segments, private sector employment, public sector employment, and self-employment, we really haven't seen much job growth in the private sector, number of employees. And when you add in self-employment, those numbers are down. So the total number of people working in the private sector is actually below where it was prior to the pandemic. And the only reason we have any job growth in the province is because of the prolific hiring in the public sector healthcare, education and and public admin so that's something that we're watching as well Uh, that's a concern and it kind of speaks to to a softening in the labor market and a less robust recovery than the top line numbers
0: suggest
1: okay ken that is so interesting then so what do we attribute that to because at the same time i think some of those same private employers would tell you they're having a hard time recruiting people so is there some kind of disconnect happening there
7: well, this there is. So you have the overall demographic challenge and the churn in the labor market, and, and then it's um, it, there's a term in, in macroeconomics called crowding out, and that's just you know when the public sector spends more, hires more, takes up you know construction workers for when when infrastructure projects in the public sector are getting done, they suck them suck them away from the private sector, and I I would argue that is something that we are seeing right now, um, just be, just because of this. Dark difference in employment growth between the two segments. So yeah, the hiring in the public sector is enough that it is taking people away from the private sector. It is contributing to uh, driving up, up wage pressures, and, um, and and like I say, it's it's very strong. and very evident in healthcare about um right. you know up, up about 20 percent over the two and a half years just in health care alone so. okay
1: so i guess then looking forward with that so do the private sector employers have to compete more like do they have to offer more to get some of those employers to take those jobs with them
7: uh, they they will um they're gonna to have to try and compete and, and this is the challenge and hence the term crowding out is they are kind of competing uh, toe-to-toe for a lot of these employees um, and it, it, uh, it, it's difficult because the public sector you know they, they have gener- uh, generous benefit offerings they can offer somewhat higher wages uh, typically so it, it does create challenges for the private sector.
1: That is so interesting. Ken thank you for joining us.
7: You're very welcome. Thanks F- for having
1: me. Fascinating discussion. That's Ken Peacock, Vice President and Chief Economist for the Business Council of BC, talking about, you know, the job market here and some of those discrepancies, the disconnects that we see happening. Uh how do you get people to take those jobs. If you're an employer, how do you get somebody to take your job? Want your job? That is the challenge. Now, if you've been trying to hire out there, tell us your story. Simi at CKNW.com. Maybe you're somebody looking for a job and thought, you know what? No, I'm not going to go back to that lower paying job. I'm going to take this one over here. You change careers. This is mornings
3: with Simi. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news.